Well, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15? For those of you who are new with us, we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel at a lightning pace. Just don't blink, you'll miss things. We're moving fast. Last week, though, we finished with verse 20, and we pick it up in verse 21. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, verse 20 ended with Jesus and his disciples ministering around Capernaum, which is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And verse 22 tells us now they have moved to the north into Gentile country. Tyre and Sidon are located on the Mediterranean Sea coast in southern Lebanon. Tyre was about 35 miles from Galilee and Sidon was 60 miles from Galilee. And now we read in verse 22, And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. <laughs> Compassionate guys. Um, A woman of Canaan. Well, you remember from the Old Testament that the Canaanites were a group of immoral pagans who practiced child sacrifice, ritual orgies, and other things that were an abomination in the sight of God, things that God had forbidden. And he gave them actually hundreds of years to repent, but they refused. So finally, God pronounced judgment upon them and commanded that Joshua and the children of Israel were to utterly wipe them out as they came into the promised land to conquer it. Remember, the whole book of Joshua lays that scenario out. But Israel wasn't completely obedient to what God said. They didn't drive out or wipe out all the residents of Canaan. Uh, They left some of the Canaanites there. Uh, They escaped the invasion of Israel and remained in the land. And this woman was a descendant of 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 one of the survivors. But here we have a Gentile woman from a cursed race approaching Jesus and asking him to heal her daughter, who was severely demon-possessed. And notice it says that Jesus answered her not a word. Now, at first glance, that seems out of character for our Lord, doesn't it? I mean, here was a mother who had a daughter who desperately needed help. She had been taken captive by the devil, literally. She was demon-possessed. And doesn't the gospel say that Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil? Hadn't he already by this time no doubt delivered dozens if not hundreds of people from demonic oppression or possession? So why is he quiet here? Why doesn't he answer her plea? Why does he seem to ignore her plea? It's an interesting question. Well, I think part of it had to do with the way she approached him. She cried out to him and said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now, Son of David was a messianic title that came from a promise that God had given to King David many centuries earlier. Uh, You can read about that in 2 Samuel 7, where God had promised David that Messiah would be his descendant. Now, even though Messiah was not going to be born for another thousand years, roughly, in the Jewish culture, any descendant, any father who had a son, no matter how many generations down the road, bore the title son of that individual. So Messiah, from that moment on, bore the title son of David. And when she approached him as son of David, she was putting herself on Jewish ground. 
which she had no right to do because she was a Gentile and therefore she was outside the covenant that God made with Israel. In essence, she was trying to approach Jesus using somebody else's relationship with God, which is why he didn't answer her. It's interesting how that unbelievers do this all the time when they want something from God. They come to him in prayer, call him Father, many times Lord. They may even quote a scripture verse where he's promised to provide for his people. The problem is they are not one of his people. At that point, of course, they haven't entered into a covenant with him through his son, Jesus Christ. In essence, they're trying to use the relationship that Christians have with the Lord to get him to help them. Now, this is a rather serious transgression, whether you realize it or not. It's a very dangerous thing to try to use somebody else's relationship to approach God. First of all, I'll give you an illustration of this, and I'll read you a scripture. You remember when the seven sons of Sceva, seven Jewish men, tried to exercise a demon out of a guy? Remember that story? And they came to the demon-possessed man, and here's what they said. We adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Come out of the man. And the demon said, Jesus we know. Paul we know. Who are you? (laughs) Jumped on these guys and the demon beat the snot out of these seven guys. They ran out of the house wounded and naked, it says. Look, you don't want to come to God pretending to be a child of his because the devil's going to beat the snot out of you. If you enter into Christian territory in the power of your own flesh and not in the power of God, guess what? I mean, and God does not take this lightly, by the way. In fact, I'm going to read you something interesting. Turn to Psalm 50. Maybe you remember reading this. Maybe you've forgotten you read this. But God is speaking to this very issue about people trying to approach him, acting like they're his children, and yet they don't have a relationship with him. And we'll pick it up in verse 16. But to the wicked God, says, now the wicked would refer to anybody who does not have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? God is saying, look, what right do you have to approach me as a child and you haven't made a covenant with me? You don't honor my word. You don't live according to what I have said. All your life has lived in rebellion and sin. And then when you need my help, you come to me and pretend to be a child of mine. God said in verse 18, when you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done. And I kept what? Silent, just like Jesus kept silent with this woman, refusing to answer her because she was trying to come to him through somebody else's relationship. I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order. What in order? All your transgressions before your eyes. And you know when God's going to do that on the day of judgment? You can read Revelation 20. When God opens the books, and one of those is his ledger that contains every sin a person has ever committed, whether in thought, word, and deed, they are all there. God's a meticulous record keeper. And God is saying, look, if you come to me pretending to be a Christian, I'm paraphrasing now, and yet you have no relationship with me, 
God says, not only will I not answer your prayers, I'm going to hold that against you in the day of judgment. Now, here's the good news. God goes on to say, and I believe what Jesus is showing us here in this very passage, God goes on to say, why are you pretending to be my child? Haven't I invited you to actually be my child? You want to come to me and call me your father? I would love nothing more. And I've asked you to come and to be my child. I want to take care of you. I don't want this pretend nonsense, this facade. Be real. You want to come to me? You need my help? I'm happy to give it if you receive my son that I can make you a member of my family. I mean, when Jesus taught us to pray, remember the disciples said to him one day, Lord, teach us to pray. He said, look, therefore pray in this manner, our what? Father. Now, guys, that was not a universal prayer he was teaching for anyone and everyone who wants to come to God and just, you know, every, anybody in the world can just say, Father. That was only for the children of God to pray. Those who had entered into a covenant with him, who were now family, who had a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. This Gentile woman was trying to approach Jesus through Israel's relationship with God. And so he refused to answer her at first. We're going to see in a moment, it was his intention all along to help this woman. But again, God wants us to be real, right? God doesn't want us plain church, plain Christian, you know, coming to him with some phony relationship that we know isn't real. He wants to help us, but he wants us to be up front. He wanted to help this gal, but not as long as she was pretending to be something she wasn't. He wanted to draw her faith out, her faith, so he could really help her by first of all saving her and then being a father to her. So at first he refuses to talk with her. At first, all right? Now, as Jesus patiently is trying to draw her faith out, <laughs> the disciples weren't so patient with her. They said in verse 23, they urged him saying, Lord, send her away for she cries after us. Mark tells us in his gospel, the, what they were saying is, the woman kept on asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So she kept following him and asking him, Lord, please help me, please help me, please, Lord, deliver my daughter from this demon. And the disciples were irritated. But see, she was persistent. And when you're talking about prayer, that is something very important that Jesus also taught us about prayer in Luke chapter 11. Let me read it to you out of the New Living Translation. It comes out of Luke 11, verses 5 to 10. Then teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, friend, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door is locked for the night. My family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, Though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. And so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks the door will be opened. Now, understand this. There were times Jesus taught us by comparison, and there were times he taught us by contrast. He is not saying your heavenly father is like this neighbor who really doesn't care about you, and you have to keep 
praying and knocking and banging and pleading before He said, oh, fine, gives you what you want. That's not how our Heavenly Father is. The point is, if a friend can't be persuaded through friendship to give you what you need, He will through persistence. How much more so will your Heavenly Father, who wants to help you, who wants to provide for you, how much more so will He give to you if you're persistent? But you say, well, wait a minute, though. If he wants to do it, why do I have to be persistent? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. And we'll see some of them right now. But persistence is a good thing. Let me just say it right now. If God gave to us everything we asked for the first time we asked, we'd all have a very shallow relationship with God. Persistence keeps us on our knees. It keeps us in God's presence. It teaches us to know him in a greater way. And so it's very important that God often will use, pers- he'll delay his responses to keep us on our knees, to teach us persistence, and to grow our faith. Exactly what he was doing in this story. Now the disciples, they weren't thinking like spiritual men, so they thought she was a nuisance. Jesus did not see her as a nuisance. He saw her as a potential. In what way? Well, it wasn't just her salvation that he was after. What happened was, She was going to represent the beginning of the gospel spreading to the Gentiles. To the Gentiles. Up until this point, Jesus' ministry had been focused almost exclusively on Israel. And much of it was conducted up in the Galilee region. That's where he did most of his uh, miracles and did most of his teaching. But as we've already pointed out, by this time in his ministry, he's less than a year from the cross. A lot of the Jewish people had rejected him. And so he um, is beginning now to turn more and more to the Gentiles. And this woman represents, I believe, the beginning of what God would do among the Gentile peoples. You see, it was true that God made a special covenant with Israel through Abraham. But the Messiah, when he came, was not going to be just the Savior of Israel. He was going to be the Savior of all mankind. And that was something that God had clearly said throughout the Old Testament Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and many other places we read how God always intended to save the Gentiles and would eventually make a new covenant with both Jews and Gentiles where they would become his new covenant people, a brand new creation, listen, a spiritual nation called the church. Peter talks about this. You don't have to turn there. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Peter, in talking about the church, says... You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But before that could happen, before the door could be officially opened to the Gentiles, since Israel was chosen by God as his chosen people, and since God gave to the Jewish people his word, his covenant, it was only right that he went to them first, announcing that, here I am, your Messiah, and I've come to bring the new covenant. The new covenant was something Jeremiah spoke about, Ezekiel spoke about. I mean, they knew what the new covenant basically was all about. And Jesus now appears on the scene, claims to be their Messiah, preaches about the new covenant, the gospel of grace. It was fitting he went to Israel first. But then after the nation rejected him, although many Jews did receive him, For the most part, the nation, including the Jewish leadership, had rejected him. Only after that could the door be officially opened for the Gentiles to be saved. And, of course, as we peek ahead in Matthew's Gospel, you all know it, of course, 
after the Jewish leadership had Jesus crucified. On the third day, he arose again, spent 40 more days with his disciples before he ascended back to his father. And before he did that, he gave to them and to us, his disciples, this great commission. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person, making disciples of all nations. And Paul, picking up on that in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, in other words, the Gentiles. Yes, it was fitting that Israel be approached first with the gospel. But it was always God's intention to save those who were outside the covenant that God made with Israel. Read uh, Ephesians, I believe in chapter 3. Where Paul said that, you know, you Gentiles, you were once alienated from the commonwealth of God, the covenants. You were outside the promises. But those of you who were afar off, he has brought near through the blood of Christ. And has broken down the middle wall of partition that separated you and Gentile. And has made from the two one new man in Christ. A brand new creation called the church. The new covenant people of God. So that was God's program. And so... This cursed woman, of course, she represents all of us. We're all cursed in Adam. We have, none of us have any right to approach God in our own goodness. But this cursed woman alienated from the covenants God made with Israel becomes a glimpse of what God was going to do among the Gentiles. But listen, he still needed to draw her faith out. And if you don't understand what he's doing, you're going to see him as callous and uncaring. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Sometimes God is silent when it comes to our prayers. Sometimes we pray and pray and he doesn't seem to be hearing us. We don't get any indication that he's listening to us. But you stay persistent. The devil is going to tell you he doesn't care. He doesn't care about you. That's a lie. What he's trying to do is keep you in his presence on your knees. He wants to continue to draw your faith out just like he was doing with this woman. So he answered her in verse 24 and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now at this point, if I were this woman, I think I would have turned and walked away in despair. I mean, she really had nothing going for her. First of all, her race was against her. She was a Canaanite and therefore the enemies of the Israelites. Her gender was against her. She was a woman. And back in that culture, women were not valued very highly. Even the disciples were against her. They said, Lord, send her away. She's bothering us. She's a nuisance. But you got to admire her. She hung in there. She was tenacious. She was persistent. She didn't give up. And you know what? Jesus Christ knew she wouldn't. Keep in mind, if you don't understand this, you're not going to get this passage. Keep in mind that our Lord responded to this woman as he did, not to destroy her faith, but to develop it. Verse 25, then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now now she's on the right track. Now she's on the right track. When she addressed him as son of David, Jesus didn't answer her because she came to him on Jewish ground and being a Gentile that was not permitted. But now she drops the pretense and simply says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. She now comes to him as a desperate broken sinner who needs help falling at his feet and worshiping him one author put it this way said 
he reminded her that his mission was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not to Gentiles, and certainly not to Canaanites. She was undismayed by this apparent refusal. Dropping the title Son of David, she worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. If she couldn't come to him as a Jew to her Messiah, she would come as a creature to her Creator. And you know what I see in this? See, as the Lord is drawing her faith out, he intends to help her. But none of the pretense. He's trying to work through all the pretense. You know, you want to come to me, you come in truth and sincerity. None of this baloney pretending to be something you're not. All right? Who do we think we are, first of all? That we come to God and pretend to be something we're not. We're more spiritual than we really are. More loving. Lord, I just don't love that co-worker as much as I should. No, the truth is you hate the guy's guts. And if he had your way, you'd, you know, get rid of him or her. But we come to God all spiritual, don't we? And God is saying, you've got to be kidding. Who do you think you're? You're not fooling me. You, know, you might have got yourself fooled a little bit. But a lot of times God won't answer our prayers until we get real with him. Until we get real. Until we say, Lord... You know, my marriage isn't so good, and you know why? A lot of it's my fault. A lot of it's my fault. I could be a better wife. I could be a better husband. I mean, Lord, you know, it's not my spouse's fault. I mean, okay, we're not perfect, neither one of us. But I know I'm a big cause of this problem. And, Lord, I'm asking you for grace to change. God says, you know what? That's real. That's real. And when we come to God in being real with him, being honest and sincere, then his ear is attentive to our cries. But not as long as we're playing games. Her faith is growing. At this point, she's not borrowing anybody else's relationship or faith. She's coming to Jesus with her own faith. And that was a great start, and the Lord now continues to draw it out. Verse 26, But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Lord! I mean, you're insulting this woman. You just called her a dog. Hey, it is true. The Jews routinely refer to Gentiles as dogs. But the term that they used was a word that referred to the wild, dirty, mangy mongrels that roamed the streets of the ancient world in packs and fed on garbage. These animals were dirty, dangerous, and hated. That's kind of why a lot of Jews picked up on that and used it against the Gentiles, because they believed the Gentiles were dirty, defiled, they were hated, and so on. So they called them Gentile dogs. It was a common expression that the Jews used to describe Gentiles. How far they were from the heart of God for these people. Sometimes how far we are from the heart of God for the lost. Oh, Lord, look at that person. Look at all those tattoos. Look at those... Things coming out of their face and pierced and all. Lord, Lord but yuck. How, how defiled. Yeah, they are. But Jesus still loves them. Jesus, we're all cursed. He, you know, this woman was a cursed Gentile. We're all cursed. All the descendants of Adam bear a blood curse. We're all defiled apart from Christ. And it's just sad once we get saved that we then become Pharisees who used to walk down the streets with their robes pulled tight to their bodies, lest the breeze should take a flap of the robe and it would brush up against a Gentile inadvertently, and they'd be defiled. Don't expect to reach too many people if that's your attitude. All right? And Jesus was trying to show her, and of course his disciples, that, you know, 
the Gentiles are not these dirty dogs as you think of them. In fact, the word the Lord used, he didn't use that term of derision. The term he used was a word that meant a family pet like a puppy. Which, of course, was not a hated mongrel. It's actually a part of the family, although didn't enjoy the same privileges as the children of the family. And who were the children of the family? The Jewish people. So in essence, Jesus said to her, let me paraphrase. How can I help you? I have only been sent to help and minister to the children of Israel. It isn't fitting to take the food intended for the children and give it to the family puppies. Now again, the Lord's not insulting her. He's not putting her down. He's not playing games with her. He is trying to draw out her faith. And you know what? She responded. I love this gal. She immediately seized on his illustration about the children, children's bread, which is exactly what he wanted her to do. Let me paraphrase what she said in verse 27. It is true that we Gentiles do not sit at the table as children and eat the bread. But even the pet dog under the table can eat some of the crumbs that fall on the ground. That's what Jesus was looking for. That's what he was waiting for. He said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Why was her faith so great? Well, she believed. When she called him Lord, okay, now she attached son of David to it, but when she called him Lord... It indicated that she believed him to be the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. She had faith. Jesus just needed to bring it out and develop it a little bit through his silence and things. And her faith blossomed, and eventually, I believe, this woman got saved. Again, God often delays his answers, not to destroy our faith, but to develop it. Because, again, if he answered us so quickly all the time, we would, we would have a very shallow walk. It's when he delays his answers and it keeps us on our knees crying out to him. The more time you spend in God's presence, the more you're going to become like him. The more you're going to have his heart. The more you're going to know him. And guys, that's the whole point, that we would know him. Paul says, I live for one reason, to know him more and more. Now, we read in verse 29. Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee. See, he's kind of, he's kind of bypassing the cities, all right? Why? Because again, his ministry to Israel now is, well, at least in the Galilee, is pretty much over with. He has done all the preaching, done all the miracles, and now who's ever received him has received him to the rest. Their hearts are so hard, he moves on now. As we get about six months from the cross, we're going to read how he sets his eyes, I'll paraphrase, like a laser towards Jerusalem. He comes into Jerusalem for the final few months of his life and ministry, focuses on the folks of Jerusalem and around the surrounding area before the cross. But right now we see him, he kind of skirts population centers. Interesting, goes up on top of a mountain and sits down. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. 
if you were with us a few months ago when we first entered into chapter 8 and we saw Jesus begin, Matthew begins to record many of the miracles Jesus did. We took you to Isaiah and showed you scriptures where God said, you're going to know my Messiah. Because there were always false messiahs showing up. God says, you're going to know my Messiah, the true Messiah. In that when he comes, he is going to do all the things he has done right here. He's going to heal all these different peoples of diseases and so on. You're going to know he's my Messiah, the true Messiah. But you know, interesting as I was reading this, the fact that he went up onto a mountain and they all came to him, you realize in Scripture, a mountain often represents a kingdom. Remember in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar sees this vision of this great 90-foot polymetallic image? And at one point, a stone not cut with hands, Jesus Christ is the idea, smites the image in his feet, the whole thing crumbles, and the stone grows into a giant mountain that fills the earth. The giant mountain that fills the earth was a reference to Christ's kingdom when he comes the second time. And this could be, I believe, a picture of that very time. When we're in the millennial kingdom and Christ is seated in his kingdom and they're bringing all these people to him, you think, well, wait a minute. Will people have physical handicaps and various things in the kingdom age? They're going to be born that way. I mean, the curse is not lifted. Uh, you're still going to have people born, I believe, blind and, uh, and maimed, not maimed, but uh, crippled and so handicapped. But when they are brought to Jesus, he's going to heal them all. Because in his kingdom, there's going to be the lame will leap for joy. The, the dumb will speak his praises. The, the deaf will hear and so on. He is going to eradicate the diseases and handicaps that we live with right now. So I see this, although this really did happen, the Holy Spirit uses it uh, to be a, a type of a future time. When the Lord Jesus is seated in his kingdom on the earth. And people from all over the world are brought to him and he heals them. Great joy will fill that kingdom. Well, this ministry to these folks lasts about three days. And um, it says here in verse 32, Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, I, I can't believe this, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to feed such a great multitude? Now, you have to remember, this comes after the feeding of the 5,000, right? When he fed 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe 20,000 people, with just five little barley biscuits and a couple of small pickled fish. They were all glutted. They picked up 12 baskets full. And the, and the Greek is a basket like you would have a hamper basket, okay? Just, you know, not something real big, something you can carry. And now, here it is again, people in the wilderness. They've been there three days this time, listening to Jesus teach. He doesn't want... Talk about building faith. He's been trying to build faith in these knuckleheads for three and a half years. You would think at this point, they're like, wow, here's more people that need to eat. What's he going to do this time, right? And they're like, well, where are we going to get bread? It's like, give me a break, guys. He must be shaking his head going, Father, I mean, you know. I'm not going to be here for much longer. We, these guys need to get with the program here. I wonder how many times he says that about us. You know? Lord, how many, you know, how many times do I have to show you I'm faithful before you trust me? How many times have I got to show you that I can provide for you when there is no avenue of provision? I mean, haven't I done that in the past? Why do you doubt me in the present? 
So the disciples were like, where are we going to get enough food to feed all these people? So Jesus, how many loaves do you have? Well, we have seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks and broke them and gave them to his disciples. Let's go through this one more time, guys. And the disciples gave to the multitude. And so all eight were glutted once again. And they took up seven large baskets. Well, first time, 12 baskets full. The Greek word, though, means like a, like the, a kind of a shallow hamper, like you would put clothes in when you out of the dryer and so on. This is a word that means a very large basket, the same word that was used when Paul was lowered down over the wall of Damascus in the book of Acts because they wanted to kill him, which was nothing new. Everyone wanted to kill Paul. So they put him in a basket and lowered him down with ropes down to the ground. This large basket. Okay, Jesus saying, look, 12 small baskets, you didn't get it. All right, how about seven big ones, all right? When are you guys going to get it? Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude. They got into the boat and came to the region of Magdala. Um, as we bring this to a close, let me just say this. It's interesting to me that there are only two people in the New Testament, the Gospels, that Jesus commended for having great faith. You know who they were? Well, this woman, right? This woman here. A Gentile from a cursed nation, okay? And the centurion who said to him, Lord, I have a servant who's like a son. He is severely ill. Would you heal him? Jesus said, I'll come right now. No, 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 no. No, no, no. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But as a centurion, I'm a man in authority. I say to this person, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. Lord, you just speak the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, I haven't seen this kind of faith in Israel. The disciples, they weren't commended for their great faith. They were chastised for their lack of faith. Oh, ye of little faith, he says to them on at least two occasions. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, okay? Um, I don't want to mislead anybody. There have been times when I have seen people. Now, they're not Christians. I've talked with them. I know they're not born again. But they're religious. They've grown up in church. Maybe you've gone to catechism classes when they were younger or uh, Awanas or something. And I have seen them, unbelievers now, in certain situations exercise more faith, more calmness, more trust in God than we do sometimes as his people. That's to our shame. And I speak to myself, too. I think when it comes to us not trusting the Lord like we should, I don't think we're obviously spending enough time in His Word, enough time in His presence. We don't really get, we're not really getting to know Him. And if you don't know God, you're not going to trust Him with your life. I mean, you know Him, you're saved. But if you don't know Him practically, you're not going to want to trust Him with the everyday decisions and guidance of your life. That's something to think about. Now, before we leave Matthew chapter 15, I just want to review several of the lessons the Holy Spirit has taught us through this chapter. And I won't spend a lot of time with this. I'll just touch on them. I encourage you to read the chapter again. There's a lot here, by the way. It's a lot here. Number one, the Holy Spirit is teaching us that religion, with all of its traditions and man-made laws, can only give people the illusion that they have a relationship with God when, in fact, it blinds them to the simplicity that is in Christ. The Pharisees and scribes, where, where the chapter started, 
were men who were very religious. But they didn't have a relationship with Jesus. May I say it one more time? God does not want religion from you. He wants a relationship with you. And you know what? I can't speak for your upbringing, but I know that growing up as a Roman Catholic and loving the Catholic Church, going to Catholic grade school, and almost every day at lunch, a buddy of mine would go into the chapel and we'd do some Stations of the Cross, you know, um, lit the candles, prayed the rosary. All of that gave me the feeling that I had a relationship with God. Until I got older, I started reading the Bible, and I recognized that, you know what? Religion will never bring me into a relationship with God. It will only give me the impression, the illusion. I have a relationship with God. But the only way to have a genuine relationship with God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Where you invite Jesus. How simple can you get, right? I don't have to keep all these traditions and regulations and ceremonies. That's what the Jews tried to do, and it never brought them into a relationship with God. I just had to simply receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, turn my life over to Him. When I did, He came inside. He took over. And I have a relationship with Him now based on His grace. Be careful. Because religion can blind. It blinded the scribes and the Pharisees. It has blinded a lot of other people. Number two, we must be aware of any religious system that makes disobedience to God's Word look like virtue or a good thing. Remember what it says about the scribes and Pharisees in this chapter? How God had said very simply in the, uh, in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, you shall honor your mothers and fathers. But the Pharisees had figured a way around that, kind of a, a little loophole, all right? They claimed, if I dedicate everything I have to God, they called it Corbin, they even had a word for it, that I didn't really have to give anybody anything, I didn't really have to help my parents. Because if they came to me and were starving, I could say, well, Mom and Dad, I really want to help you. But, you know, I've dedicated all my possessions to God. Therefore, they all belong to God. I can't give to you what now belongs to God. The joke was they didn't really have to give that stuff to God. Just They promised to give it to God. They could wait until they were on their deathbed to give it to God. But in the meantime, they could still use it for themselves. They had figured a way to make their selfishness and greed look virtuous. Be careful of any system or any teacher that tries to take what God has said is wrong and turn it around to make it look pious and holy. God says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Oh, but we've got people today who have figured out a way to make greed look spiritual. And they're all over the TV and radio telling you how God wants you rich. It's not God's desire that you be poor. If you're poor, you're in sin. And if you're sick, you're in sin. Because God wants everyone healthy. Or, like I saw some character down in Texas who claimed to be a pastor. Well, he had a following. But convinced the young ladies in his church to sleep with him because if they did, they would, he would impart to them some special holiness. You know, it's, people buy into this stuff. Seriously. And they finally arrested the guy who was a polygamist, and he's in prison now. But I, I, how do people fall for that stuff? I think of these Muslims, these Muslim young men, who think that by strapping bombs on themselves and blowing themselves up in markets where little children and women especially are blown to pieces, that that somehow is going to be, that, that honors God. And that will, that will ensure their entrance into paradise someday. 
when God says, thou shalt not kill. We talked Wednesday night about the Crusades and how one crusader boasted in his journal. Of course, as they were marching to the Holy Land to liberate it from the Muslim infidels, along the way they killed many Jews. And this crusader boasted how he had killed two Jews with one stroke of his sword, a mother who was pregnant, and boasted in his journal how proud God was of him. You know, those are some extreme examples, but you understand what I'm saying. Be careful of anyone who would take what God says is wrong and somehow turn it around to make it seem holy and good. Number three, we must also be aware of worship that comes from the lips only and not from the heart. Jesus said, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as commandments the traditions of men. Again, it's so easy to give God lip service, to come to church and sing his praises, and then all week long our hearts are far from him, and he knows the heart. Number five, God desires for all people to be saved. But listen, we have to come to Jesus in sincerity. Again, no pretense, no playing games. I mean, he wants to save. He wants to help. But we have to be broken. We have to be sincere. We can't be pretending to be something we're not. Broken and honest, we have to come to Jesus. And only then will he be able to help us. Number six, we dare not limit Jesus Christ to any one nation or people. You know, we think in America, not you guys, but there's a lot of folks who think in America that, you know, we're the guys with the white hats that God loves. We're the Christian nation. And God only loves us. Think again. Think again. We dare not limit Jesus Christ to any one nation or people. The gospel came to the Jew first. That's true. But today, Jesus is the Savior of all mankind. Romans 10:13 Whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I'll give you one more. God is trying to build and strengthen our faith. Don't forget the things that he has done in the past in your life. Draw from those things in the past to strengthen your faith in the present. As you read the Psalms, it's obvious that David, often David said, "Lord, I'm in this tough situation, but you know what? I remember the days of old." I remember how you were with me at other times in the past, how you came through, how you delivered me, how you helped me. Lord, I have no reason to doubt that you're not going to do that again now. The disciples should have known that. They should have drawn on the 5,000 feeding of the 5,000 experience and had faith for the present feeding of the 4,000. Well, they forgot about the past and panic when they saw this present need. We do that. How many times has God got to prove to us he's faithful? How many times does God have to provide for us that we, we remember that when we're facing a difficult circumstance, when maybe we don't have the money to pay the rent, or the cupboards are kind of bare, we don't have money right now, or the, the car needs to be repaired, or there's, we need tires or something, and you know what, all of a sudden now we're losing hope. We're fretting, we're, we're, you know, we're anxiety grips our hearts, and God is saying, How many times have I come through for you? How many times have I helped you that you would doubt me now? Yes, but Lord, you haven't answered me so quick. Yeah, because I want to keep you on your knees for a while. We haven't spent much time together lately. I want you to come to me. Meeting your needs, that's, yeah, I'll take care of that. That's not the issue. The issue is you and me. The issue is our relationship. I've already promised to take care of your physical needs. I intend to do that. 
I want us to grow in our relationship because that will help everything in your life as you draw close to me. So, a lot of good lessons, right, that we need to take into our heart. May God give us the grace to do that, that we would learn how good and great he is, how faithful he is, that we are his children, and he has promised to take care of us and provide our needs. Now, let's praise him. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Faith says, God, I thank you that you've provided. Well, somebody says, but wait a minute, where's the provision? Oh, it's not here yet. But God's promised to provide. It's as good as in the bank. So I'm going to thank him now for what he's going to do, because I know he's going to do it. And God says, that's the kind of faith I honor. That's great faith. It pleases me.